let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we delight to sing your praise, for you are worthy of praise. We delight to sing of the payment for our sin that your Son and our Savior made in our behalf. We tremble at the depth of the price that was paid, and yet we rejoice that that payment price was made, for it was necessary to take away our sin. There is not a God like you. Help us to worship you, to exalt our exalted head, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. To humble ourselves before your word and allow your spirit, the Holy Spirit, to do his work in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of loudmouths in history. There was a long list I could have used as a sample to talk about a loudmouth, but I I chose one particular loudmouth who, before his dominance, would proclaim boastful words. Most of you will remember Mike Tyson. He he was a bit braggadocious in his day, and um, he was quite good at backing up his word until he kind of went off the rails a bit and met Buster Douglas. That was kind of unfortunate. And then, um, truly, he met his match when the head-butting Evander Holyfield and he uh, connected. And one of those matches, you might remember something specific that took place during that bout. It was the second time they fought. The first time Evander Holyfield beat Mike Tyson. The second time he also won by disqualification after numerous headbutts by Evander Holyfield in this bout. Mike Tyson thought, I have a good idea. I'm going to get back at you. I'm going to bite your ear off. (laughs) So he took a chunk out of his ear. Now, funny things have been said regarding that thing. Um, Like, what does everyone make such a big deal about? It was only the curly part. (laughs) And then, you know, the the cute little things that people do. They came up with the new new breakfast cereal, Erios. You know, I don't don't know. One of the things that was for sure is uh, on that particular day and many days since then, Mike Tyson's braggadocious spirit was not was not met with action. His, his proclamation and his action, they didn't meet up. Jesus told his followers, we're transitioning here, no more discussion of Mike Tyson or ears. Jesus told his followers, you will know them by their fruit. This morning, we'd like to apply this test of authenticity to Jesus himself. The question that we'll want to answer is, Are his claims backed up by his actions or stated differently and probably the way that we'll emphasize it, stated like this, what do we learn about the nature of Jesus as we watch his actions? What do we learn about the nature of Jesus as we watch his actions? What a great passage. It's kind of like unfair that I get to preach John chapter 11. And so many things that could be said, and we can't dive into all of it. It it is so uh, rich and deep and wide. So we're going to focus mainly on what this tells us about Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you folks, read the passage. It's plain as day. Really, very few things need explanation in John chapter 11. There'll be a couple of things we'll try to bring forth some further understanding 
bring forth a little bit more of the illumination of the text, but it's really straightforward. And I want to encourage you, you've read it 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. Read it again today. Spend some time today, later on, and read through John 11. But this morning, as we consider this, we want to recognize what Jesus' actions tell us about his nature. First of all, we'll notice this. Jesus' nature is revealed in his relationships. Jesus' nature is revealed in his relationships. This is really intense in John chapter 11. It's as, it's as human as you get. It's also as divine as you get, so don't, don't miss that. But it's as human as you get. It starts off in verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, interestingly, in John's account, it comes next. Like It comes in chapter 12. So he's, he's telling us about this thing that Mary did, and then he tells you about this thing that Mary did in the next chapter. But in other accounts, obviously, this thing is recorded and known prior to this. Jesus is, his feet were anointed by Mary, this one related to Martha, this one related to Lazarus. Verse 3, therefore the sisters sent to him, to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you, what's it say? Love. He whom you love is sick. Now that term there is the term phileo. It's a tender, affectionate love. It's a relational love. It's a friendship love. Jesus had a friend. His name is Lazarus. It's a tender, affectionate friend. This is not an acquaintance. This is not someone he developed a, a, a you know, a kind of a, a fair relationship with. He's calling him a friend. Verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Look down at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved, this is the Greek term, agape, that is the unconditional love. That's the love that is described when Jesus dies in the stead of sinners. While we were still sinners, God, or Christ, loved us. This is a love that's unconditional. It's not based upon the ones loved. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister, Mary, and Lazarus. So this is, he's developing this thought of okay, phileo, he's tender affection. He says this, this agape love. Down at verse 11 now, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps. The term friend there is philos. That's the noun form of phileo. But he pull, makes no bones about it. He makes no bones about it. He's my friend. He doesn't call everyone friend, but he calls Lazarus his friend. Jesus had close relationships. He had intimate relationships. There were certain people that he related to more frequently, more without the mask on, would be willing to reveal who he really was with these certain people. Jesus had close relationships. Look at verse 36 now. Now you'll remember, first Martha comes out, Lord, if you had been here, you, you, Lazarus would still be alive. And then later on, Jesus calls for Mary. Mary comes out. Lord, if you had been here, my brother Lazarus, he would be alive. And Jesus, having compassion on Mary, seeing her tears, 
We're going to talk about this in a few minutes. He wept himself. Then in verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he, what does it say? Loved him. That's the Greek term, phileo. He's not, this is not a generic love. This is not a distant love. This is a personal love. Jesus had close relationships. We learn something about Jesus' nature by these kinds of relationships. He was not this callous, cavalier, leader, impersonal. He, he had real, close relationships. should tell us something about our own relationships and how we can develop close relationships with certain people beyond some others. You know, some people will want to say that's not good. Well, Jesus had close relationships. How about when Jesus went to pray in the garden? Did he bring all 12 of them? Did he have three particular that he brought a little closer? What's that about? A little closer. There's something to this close relationship bit. You shouldn't condemn someone because they have close friends. Secondly, as we look at this relationship portion, Jesus had a close relationship, listen, with a prominent family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Somehow, and, and it's, it's not, you can't, I can't be dogmatic here, but they weren't, they weren't the peasants of society. It appears that they were probably a little bit more prominent and maybe a little bit more well-to-do. How can I say that? Well, there are a couple of indications. One, remember the, the story, it's an account of Martha preparing a meal for Jesus and all of his disciples. Can your average Joe do that? Not necessarily. They're providing food for a number of people. That, that's, that shows you a little something. Here in verse 19 of chapter 11, it tells you a little bit something as well. It says, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha, Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Some of these may have been hired mourners. Some of them may have been just close personal friends. And others may have just recognized the prominence of this family and wanted to be there as a show of support. Look at the end now, toward the end of the chapter, verses 45 and 46. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Now, so you see, this, this group of Jews, not family members, they're just Jews. They're, there's many of them, and they're kind of of, of varied perspective. Some of them believed and others didn't. There's something about this family. Why do I even bring up the fact that Jesus is friends, close friends, with a prominent family? Often we talk about Jesus' love for the poor and the outcast. But I think we need to recognize that Jesus is no respecter of persons in any regard. It doesn't matter if you're the smartest or dumbest, the wealthiest or poorest. Forgive me, I hope this comes across right, rightly. The blackest or the whitest. It, it doesn't make any difference to him. His relationship with people isn't based upon what they can give him and who they are. It's something more. Jesus, he would befriend the outcast and the well-to-do. I want to just, just a couple of samples. Matthew, the tax collector, he had made many enemies. Why? Because he took money from them. He probably had a few bucks. What do you think? Remember Zacchaeus? He ripped a bunch of people off. He had some bucks. Jesus said, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. <laughs> we have a little song about it. We sing. I don't sing it, but, you know, we used to sing it when we were kids. Jesus, he'd befriend anybody. And here in this particular context, he's close friends with a prominent family. We're learning something about Jesus' nature. He had friendships. 
There's a third area concerning this friendship that I want to talk about in relationships and what we're learning about Jesus' nature because of his relationships. Jesus was emotionally invested in his close relationships. Now, we're going to read a section of scripture. It's probably familiar to most of us. And a lot of times we kind of we do some, some work with this text to make it say something it doesn't say. Read commentaries. They, they do some work to make it say something it doesn't say. Basically, they say Jesus cries here because of people's unbelief. Okay, it doesn't say that. You're like taking a leap forward when I really think that this text is showing you something about Jesus' relationship with this group of people. Look at what it says beginning in verse 33. We'll start in verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Now, you can do a lot with the Greek words and talk about how he was irritated and, and, and frustrated with them. I really think that he sees his friend Mary, whom he loves, in despair. And it bothers him. He's not callous. Yes, he knows what's going to happen. The text makes it very clear, and we're going to see that. He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter that she's crying. She doesn't know this. So he sees her in her, her hour of weakness and despair, and it bothers him. Isn't that great? Aren't you happy to hear that? It makes me happy to know that my Savior cares when my heart is torn and my friend's heart is torn or my wife's heart is torn. Someone loses a baby, and their heart is torn. Someone loses their wife, their heart is torn. Should it matter to me that Jesus might, might weep for them? It should matter to me that Jesus cares, that they're troubled. He's not just, oh, I know what's going to happen. It's no big deal. Does Jesus ever get stressed? No. Does he have emotion? Yes. Do we see it here? Yes. Why? Because he's emotionally invested. Look at verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Well, that's what some people's response is. Verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. What are we seeing here? I think we're seeing Jesus living out what the New Testament calls for you and I to do for one another. I think you see in living color, in the God-man himself, in illustration, in vivid living color of what the church is to be for one another. In commands like Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 where the Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't just say, go do this. He illustrates it. And then he can bring it to pass in our lives. The Bible also tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. He's telling us something of the intimate relationship that should be amongst God's people and how it should bother us when one of our friends is suffering. 
That doesn't mean that we, we don't give them encouraging truth to lift their spirit. But we can also, in the process of giving them encouraging truth to lift their spirit, weep with them. It hurts. It hurts when things go wrong. We don't have to say, yes, but look, it's going to be great in the end. We can help them see that while we mourn with them. Not just dismissing their mourning and pretending like they should, oh, you should probably be able to get over this by now. How many people have heard that kind of statement in this life? And it's really sad. It's really sad when people say, you should probably get over that by now. Well, how about instead, how about bear with them? How about mourn and weep and be impacted with them? Jesus did. I think, I think that teaches us something. It speaks like Colossians 2 does, which speaks of our hearts being knit together in love. What does this act of Jesus' compassion, his friendship, his friendship with a prominent family, his, his friendship that is tightly tied to their, their well-being, what does it reveal about Jesus' nature? It reveals his compassion. It reveals his love. It reveals his kindness. I want to ask you a question. I know this sounds, it sounds flippant. I don't mean it flippantly. Do you like Jesus? Do you like him? I know you all say I love him. But do you like who he is? You learn what, who he is as you see him interacting and dealing with people. The Bible gives us such great pictures of it. Jesus' nature is revealed by his relationship. Secondly, Jesus' nature is revealed in his mission. This is really cool. And, and it's very interesting. Jesus' nature is revealed in his mission. We read it already, but verse 4 again. When Jesus heard that, the one that he loved is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This sickness is not unto death. This sickness is for the glory of God. Now, we said something similar about the man born blind, remember? Oh, who sinned? This man or his parents? Like, it was, it was assumed. Like, it's either him or his parents. One of them sinned, and that's why he's blind. No, 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 no. It's not because of their sinfulness that he is blind. It's to... At this time, have the glory of God unveiled before your face. Same thing here with Jesus, uh, with Lazarus' sickness unto death. Now, Jesus is all about mission. He's always all about mission. That doesn't mean he doesn't have compassion. We saw the compassion. But he's always about mission. So the one he loves is sick. He says, all right, he's sick. But don't worry, it's for the glory of God. This is my purpose. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Now, it's interesting how verse 6 starts. It says, so. Now, what you would write, if you were writing this, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so he dropped what he was doing and ran as fast as he could to Bethany so he could heal Lazarus. But that's not what it says. It says, so... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. What? What's up with that? He had something much greater in mind for them. Because Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her family, he delayed his arrival. Listen carefully to this statement. I hope it will, I hope it will feed your soul in the midst of a dry time, in the midst of a sorrow time. Jesus has something better for them than the immediate resolution of their distress. God 
unlike the rest of humanity, is not short-sighted. God is not short-sighted. He doesn't look at this sliver of time. He has the benefit of eternity. He has the whole spectrum in his mind from beginning to end. When he does what he does, he does it in light of that eternal perspective. Are you grieving in the midst of a difficulty? I promise you, Jesus has something better for you, better than the immediate resolution of your distress. Look at verses 7 and following. We're still seeing Jesus on mission. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. You and I, that's like, all right, makes sense. He's going to go to Judea. He's going to go to Bethany in in Judea. We're going to go there. This this is fine. Well, his disciples don't see it that way. It says in verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Recently, the Jews sought, sought to stone you. And are you going there again? And I, th- I think the word in the Greek is none. N-U-N. None. You're going there now? We're going to go to Judea. Hey, um, hang on a second. Do you remember the last time we were there? When you were there last time, they picked up stones and you, you took off. They, they want to stone you. You're going there now? Well, Jesus has something to say. This is setting us up for understanding Jesus' nature by understanding Jesus' mission. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. And so the disciples said, Yeah, I understand what you just said. Or they said, what? (laughs) Jesus uses this cryptic description to basically say, God's will will never be thwarted. What's the cryptic description? He says, well, there are 12 hours in the day. And if if you're going to get some work done, you're going to get it done during those 12 daylight hours. You're not going to go and get something done at night. So when it's time to do something, you go do it. That's what he just said. And right now, it's time to go do something. It doesn't matter who's there. It doesn't matter if they pick up stones. God has something for me to do. It's light. Today is the day to do this. I'm not going to wait till it's nighttime. One commentator, William Hendrickson, made this statement. It'll kind of help process this information for you. It'll be on the screen. The time allotted to me to accomplish my earthly ministry is definitely fixed. It cannot be lengthened by any precautionary measure which you, my disciples, would like to take. Got that part? Nor, I like this, can it be shortened by any plot which my enemies would like to execute. It has been definitely fixed in the eternal decree. If we walk in the light of this plan, which was known to Jesus, willing to submit it, we shall have nothing to worry about. We cannot suffer real injury, meaning real injury to that end. It doesn't mean there won't be injury in that pathway, but no real injury from it. If we do not, we shall fail. For Jesus himself, rebellion against the plan of his heavenly Father, which was also his own plan, was of course unthinkable. With the disciples, it was different. They needed this instruction. So, just to set the the stage again, we're talking about learning about Jesus' nature from this text. We learned about his relationships. Now we're learning about his nature through this 
attachment to mission. This sickness is not to death, though it did temporary death. This sickness is for the glory of God. We're going to head to Judea. Don't do that. No, no, no. It's time to go. We're doing the plan. Now look a little further at verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that he may awake, or he may wake, to me, that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. You hear that? Well, we don't have to go to Judea. He'll be fine. He's just sleeping. He'll get up. They're still pleading with him not to go. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Oh, that's, 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 I don't want being blunt. He's dead, okay? I said sleeping. I meant dead. Why can't you figure this out? He didn't say it like that, but you get, you get the point. He's like, all right, let's just cut to the chase. He's dead. Verse 16, uh, excuse me, 15. What? I, this, this keeps making me say, what? If, I, if I'm being honest with myself, okay? I'm not trying to read this as the pastor of the Cornerstone Church, as a doctor of theology. I'm just like, here, I'm just reading the text. And the text makes me say, What? I'm glad for your sakes that he was not that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. In other words, I could have healed him. He's dead. I'm glad I wasn't there. Like, this just doesn't make any sense to us. Except when we see that Jesus is on mission. What's the mission? The glory of God. To do the will of God. And here in this text, that you might believe. That you might believe. There are too many doubters that you might believe. They, had they not seen enough? Had he not walked on the water and calmed the sea and healed the lame and made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the, the, the stammering tongue unloosed? Has he not done enough? Nope, apparently not. I'm glad I wasn't there. I want you to see what I really have in store for you. It's not just about someone seeing something or hearing something or, or, or speaking. It's not about a crippled person being able to walk. It's not about someone who didn't understand something. It's, it's not, listen, it's not about his ability over demons and storm and nature. It's something greater, something about himself and something about every follower that would ever walk after him. He wanted them to know that he has power over physical and spiritual life. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe and know who I really am and what I'm really about. Jesus' powerful display of resurrection would confirm the faith of his disciples. Now, interestingly, the next verse shows us Thomas the realist. Thomas the realist, he thinks, well, I guess we'll just all die. It'll be fine. We'll be good. Verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's still saying, they're going to pick up stones and stone them. They'll stone us. We'll just die together. It'll be fine. At least we won't have to suffer the embarrassment of our Savior being dead. I don't know if that, I'm, I'm, like, that was a little addition there. That was commentary that is unwarranted. Nothing in the text about him saying that portion of it. But he's just real, okay? This is what we're headed. What does Jesus' unshakable passion to fulfill God's will reveal about his nature? What does Jesus' unshakable passion to fulfill God's will reveal about his nature? That nothing was more important than fulfilling the mission of God. 
His personal, physical life was not his prized possession. Think that one through. Skin for skin. Who said that? Satan. Satan said that. All will a person give up for his own life. Why? Because we, we treasure ourselves. We, in, in our flesh, value our personal being more than anything else. Sometimes we show that through self-sacrifice to others because we want them to be well because it makes us feel better. But it's still about us. It's still about us in our flesh. We also note that his faith in the Father is connected to real life. Like, it was put to the ultimate test. Like, he knew that those people wanted to stone him. Now, we know that Jesus is God, but we also know that he's Jesus. He's a human. He knows as a human, intellectually, that people want to kill him. And that would not dissuade him because that was not as important as fulfilling the will of the Father. It's pretty impressive. Jesus' nature is revealed in his relationships. Jesus' nature is revealed in his mission. Thirdly and finally, Jesus' nature is revealed in his work. Let's lead, uh, read, please, beginning in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days, leading up to one of the funniest lines in Scripture. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Mary, as soon as she heard, excuse me, now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. Well, me, would not have died. Sorry about that. Would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give it you. That's interesting, isn't it? If you had come in time, Lazarus would not have died. Now you're here, and I know that if you ask God, God will raise him from the dead. That's an interesting way to transition to what Jesus says next. And still Martha not quite getting it. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. So she immediately associates Jesus and his statement with the mourners that have come and said, listen, Lazarus will come, he'll, he'll be alive again, you'll see him someday in glory, everything will be fine, it, it'll be fine. Like, that helps, it does. It doesn't make the pain gone. Don't think that just because we have a really great theological thing to say, it makes the pain go away. It doesn't. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she comes to this, this theological conclusion. Okay, you're talking about someday Lazarus will be alive again and we'll be together and it'll be good. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he might may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, I, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. We're going to come back to that statement at the end. Verse 28. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews, who were with her in the house, and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, 
she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Does that sound familiar? Same thing that Martha said. My brother wouldn't have died if you were here. Now, this is not accusation. This is factual. Like, she's stating this as a fact. Oh, if, if only you could have been here. I know you would have healed him. This is not, why didn't you come? This is, if you were here. If you were here, he would be okay. Verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And here's that funny line. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. And I really like the King James rendering. By now he stinketh. For he's been dead for four days. Now, what's the significance of four days? Why not two days? Why not six days? Well, there was a, I don't know if this is why. This is just a theory. There was a, a theory in those days that a person isn't, you can't really say they were dead unless they were dead for three days. Like their spirit like kind of hung out waiting. Oh, I wonder if I was going to make it or not. Oh, we're good. Goes back in. We're fine. Not really dead. But when you get to the fourth day, like he's really dead. So this is the theory, possibly, why it was four days and why Jesus waited so that no one would say, well, he really wasn't dead. He just kind of was in that one of those situations where the Spirit was hanging out and then he came back. No, four days. He's, he's, he, by now, he's decomposing. What a sight that would have been if they like, took the robes off and he was actually decomposing. Fortunately, when Jesus does something, he does it like the real way. He gives real life, no decomposition. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Do not say to you that if you would believe, you would see what? The glory of God. If you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him. Wow. Now let's talk about this just for a minute. Jesus says, not, he does not say, I have resurrection power. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. Hold your hand here. One passage of scripture, actually two. John 5. Jesus lets us know about this element of his nature in John 5, beginning in verse 24. The Bible says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of whom? the Son of God, and those who hear will what? Live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the, the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. What is he going to say? Something along the lines of, come forth. Look at chapter 6 and verse 40. Chapter 6 and verse 40. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes him may have everlasting life. And what does it say? I will raise him up at the last day. Scripture declares Jesus Christ to be creator and sustainer of life. It does. It's very clear. Here, in this text and these that we've related, we see that he grants resurrection life. First in Lazarus, later in himself. And this kind of resurrection life is both physical and spiritual, which is why he doesn't say, I am the resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Both resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection. He is the source of resurrection. He is the living illustration of resurrection. He is the end of resurrection. He is the first fruits of those who sleep and are raised. He is the life. It is through him we have resurrection in the future. It is through him we have real, enduring, eternal life. There is no spiritual life outside of him. There is no spiritual life outside of him. Our children are born into this world, and they're sweet, and they're cute, and they goo-goo and gaga, and they, they look into our eyes, and, and they, my little daughter grabs me around the neck, and she squeezes and like pats me, and my son does similar things. It's like, it's so cool. It's like great. I love this. Wonderful. But there's no spiritual life. She doesn't know it. She'll soon learn it. She is dead in her trespasses and sins. And she needs the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because it's through Christ and Christ alone that someone is given spiritual life that results in a future day when there is physical resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. This is what Jesus says. He tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, like Lazarus, die physically, yet shall he live physically. Physically, he'll live physically. And everyone who lives and believes in me, everyone who has physical life, and believes in me, what will that happen? They'll never die. Now, is he talking about physical life here? No. Some people interpret it that way. It really, the context is, you've got this Lazarus who's dead, receiving spiritual life and physical life, and he says, if you live and believe, just like if you're dead and you have believed, you have what? Spiritual life. Real, enduring life. And he asks this question at the end, do you believe? And Martha makes this statement, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. That term means Messiah. You're the promised one of the Old Testament. You are the one who fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. He says, you are the Son of God. That is a, an expression that it clearly means that Jesus is God. He's deity. And then she says, who is coming into the world? Or the one who comes into the world. The promised one. The promised one. You're the one who we've all been waiting for. 
You know what Martha's response was? Yes, Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are. Everything you say, everything you do. This was before the stinky brother was raised to life. She didn't need the resurrection of Lazarus to believe. But I can tell you this, after the resurrection, how much more did she believe? How much bolder was her faith, just like the disciples? I want you to see this. I'm glad I wasn't there for your sake, so that now when you see what I, who I really am and what I really do, you'll really understand and believe that I not just have resurrection power, but I am the resurrection, the source of resurrection. And it will show you when I go into the grave, I won't stay there. And when you go into the grave, you won't stay there. I give life. This is who Jesus is. What's your response? Let's pray. Father, most of us are impressed by Jesus, who he is, which is revealed by what he has done and what he still does. He didn't say, I was the resurrection and the life, but I am. And so he still fulfills that role. He's still raising people to life eternal. He's still giving spiritual life. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room that not, has not come to have real spiritual life, that you would draw them to yourself, make them alive through Jesus. And for those of us that know him, Teach us what we should learn about Jesus and then about how that should be reflected in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.